Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Sandy Beach, and I'm an alcoholic. How you all doing? It's very nice to be with you all tonight and to see a lot of friends I haven't seen in a while and to have George and Peggy and Jim up here. Um, it's very comforting. And Fred and Martha working so hard to put this thing together. And to any of you that are new here tonight, I say welcome from the bottom of my heart, and I know that everybody in this room cares about you. And I know that's probably hard to believe, because before we got to AA, we didn't care about it anybody unless there was an angle associated with it. Then I would care about you, because you might buy me a drink, or I would care about you, and I might could borrow money from you, or whatever. And uh, when I first got to AA, I couldn't understand just raw love. It, it put me off. It made me feel, I just couldn't understand it. Because I had never experienced it um, flowing out of me. Everything that came out of me was phony, and so I just assumed that anybody who was acting like they loved me was pretending, just like I was. And uh, when I got to AA, it, it was just undeniable that complete strangers were coming up and offering me a ride or offering to do various things. And uh, So when we say to you with, that are new here tonight that we really care about you, it's not a stretch of anything. We really do. And I think it's because we've all been in that exact spot that you're in. And we know the two places that you can go. You can either go back out or you can come down this path uh, called Alcoholics Anonymous. And we know how wonderful this is and how awful the other is. And we just want you to just please make the right choice and stick around. And so hopefully maybe I'll say something or the other speakers over the weekend that will convince you to stick around and see all the wonderful things that are in store for you. Um, I talk a lot, so I get um, my own story bores me sometimes. And I'm sitting over here and I said, well, I'm going to think of something that will entertain me tonight. And, um <laughs> And I got thinking about um, the teachers that I have run into in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm talking about that these are people who have been so significant in my life. And the, the funny thing about a lot of them is that they are people that prior to AA I never would have listened to. I don't know if you have this uh, pecking order of who you listen to by just looking at them. You know what I'm saying? Well, I wouldn't listen to her. I mean, what is what could she possibly know? Or I wouldn't listen to him. I mean, geez, what would he know that could help me? And I think one of the things we learn in AA is that God puts this message in the most unusual places. And all of a sudden, we're hearing the secret of life from somebody that we just can't believe that they are sharing this. And it's been that way with me. I've just had... Uh, at my first meeting, I was in such bad shape, I'd been sober about five hours when the meeting started, and I was an outpatient from uh, Nut Ward, and I was wearing a wristband from the Nut Ward, and uh, they had told me if I ever drank again, I would be thrown out of the Marine Corps and all that, and I had been drinking, and they were going to catch me, and I had to go back again. And I was drinking over this weekend, and I called AA. And I said to myself, I'll join AA. Then when they find out I've been drinking, I'll blame it on AA. I'll say, well, 
I joined AA, which is what you told me to do, and look what happened to me. It made sense. You know how those things make sense back when you're... And I see a lot of heads going, yeah, it makes sense today, you know, so... It's, um... And so I made this phone call, and this big mean guy who is my sponsor came to my house, and he's still my sponsor. After um, 34 years, the same guy, so it's pretty lucky to have the same sponsor for that long. And he uh, just took over my life. He was very mean. <laughs> Not those kind sponsors like Clancy talks about. They were understanding and all of that. He was just... Uh, very mean and very direct, and he asked my family about my drinking. He didn't ask me, and they gave a complete exaggeration of um, things. Like terrible father, terrible husband, terrible everything, you know. My six kids are all in there just trying to top each other with one story after another. So we finally go off to the meeting, and like I say, I had five hours. When I got there, and the meeting was a group anniversary in Manassas. And, um, you know, I was just talking before the meeting about uh, the Arkansas Traveler. Charlie was there at my first meeting and a bunch of other old-timers. And uh, at that particular meeting, they had um, all these dishes to eat. You know, the families would prepare all kinds of wonderful food. And at that point, food was of little interest to me. I mean, just uh, the thought of it going in my stomach made me sick. The thought of trying to hold it in my hands that were so shaky, so I didn't have anything to do with that. I had, I would get quarter cups of coffee, cause you wouldn't spill, you know, when you would carry that back. And then they had square dancing and anniversaries and a band, and this thing went on, so by the time the meeting was, you know, going on, I had been sober ten hours. I mean, it just kept going on and on. And it was held on a, it was December 7th, 1964, and it was a terribly drizzly cold night, and it was in an odd fellow's hall in Manassas, which was a ramshackle old building. And the toilets, you had to hold your breath. You'd get outside the toilet and take a deep breath and run in <laughs> try to get finished before you had to breathe because, um, oh, God, they were awful. And there was a space heater on the ceiling that hung down, and my sponsor sat me. He always made me sit in the front row, and that damn thing was blowing right on me. And I was thinking of running away. I got out in the front steps, and it was, it was just darkness. There were no street lights. I don't know what, and it was raining and cold. And I was still thinking of running away. You know what I mean? I said, I just can't take this anymore. And a lady came out, and I later got to know her and her husband. But she just saw me, and it was like an angel came out. And I remember, this is like one of my first teachers. And she just came and said, it's going to be all right. That's all she said. But I saw her. I mean, she looked me right in the eye and said, it's going to be all right. And for some unknown reason, it totally connected. And I went back in and I sat down and I was calm. And it was like I knew that it was going to be all right. And that's powerful. That is so wonderfully powerful to have that happen. And, uh, of course, my sponsor, very direct, was a wonderful teacher. He was another Marine um, he wasn't a pilot like I was. He was into explosive ordnance disposal. And, uh, and he used to like to say, it's a great job for an alcoholic because nobody's looking over your shoulder while you're working. You know, and, it was, um, and he had about a year and a half more sobriety than I did. And 
he just uh, picked me up in the car every night we went to a meeting. Every single night forever. I mean, it, there was no break ever. And uh, we were down in Quantico, Virginia, and meetings were not nearby, so it was not uncommon to drive for 30 or 40 minutes to get to a meeting. And um, we had a third guy in our little carpool who was an army guy down at Quantico, and he was in charge of the horses. And uh, so the three of us went off to these meetings, and we really had like a 40-minute meeting going, and then the hour meeting there, and a 40-minute coming back. And I didn't realize what was happening to me, but I was getting this AA change in perspective, and I didn't realize it. And there were people that came along throughout all the years that have gone by, Clancy and getting to know Chuck from the West Coast, and then um, Ray O'Keefe and some people from the East Coast, and everywhere that I went, I was getting answers that I didn't even know I was seeking. You know what I mean? I was so stupid or in such a fog, I didn't even know what the questions were <laughs> that I was trying to have answered for myself. But when, the, when these ideas and this wisdom and power would come in, I would just know it. I would know that I didn't have to question it. I, I, I would know that I could just trust this. I could trust it because these people were backing it with results. And I think that's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no theory here. We get up and we say, I've been sober 34 years and this is how I did it. We don't get up and say, here's a theory that I think might keep me sober for 34 years. We come up and, and it's, it is a, a passing on of something that has worked. And that particular presentation has just been wonderful. But I can remember as time went on, like everybody else, I would sit in meetings and I'd see this somebody get up. And I don't know what that process is that we all have where we eliminate certain people because maybe they remind us of a dumb guy we knew in high school or a, some kind of a weird lady that we knew in grammar school or something. We look at, oh, she looks like Mrs. Brown. I'm not going to listen to her. So then I would count the chairs at the meeting. I remember that when I was new. I would... Um, I could take up the whole meeting. Remember how your mind was not working that well and I would sit in the... I would try to get near the back if my sponsor wasn't there. And I would count the number of seats, I mean the number of rows, you know, from the back of the room to the front. One, two, three, four, five, six, you know, and they're up there going, and then I came to here and there and I'm going 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then I would count the number of seats across in the rows. So I'd have 17 rows and I'd count across. There were 13 seats across. And then I'd spend the rest of the entire meeting trying to multiply 13 times. <laughs> 17 if I had. You remember how that went? You go, okay, three times seven is 21. Three times, what the hell's next to the seven? Oh, a one, a one. Okay, what the hell was the other number? Oh, I forgot it. All right, I'll start all over again. It was beyond our... Con it was just way out. I see you all relate to that. You remember? It, it was like in the nut word when they ask you to count backward by sevens. Anybody do that? 93? That's it. You, no. Nobody could get beyond that. Could you give me a clue? 80-something. So anyway, these people, and so one of the people that got up there one night, and I just knew I wasn't going to listen to him, he was a much older man, he was, uh, came up on crutches, he had um, polio when he was a child, and I had polio when I was a kid, but I still didn't identify with him, 
he was a lawyer in the House of Representatives, and he just got up and was, very, you know, very distinguished. And I said, "Gee, I just don't think I'm going to be listening." And, and he started talking about um, the road to alcoholism is paved with booze. And I somehow felt this was terribly profound. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he didn't get anybody else's attention, but I was going, oh my God, this is, um, this is unbelievable what he's talking about. And uh, he's the one who hid miniatures in his tie because his wife searched him all the time. And I remember just going, I never heard that one before. You know what I mean? It was like, finally you hear something unique in AA, hiding miniatures in his tie. And evidently he sewed up the bottom and just would put two miniatures. And she would frisk them all over the place, getting in the car and everything. And then he'd get those miniatures out and be getting drunk. And she could never figure it out. And his big resentment was that five years after he got into AA, they came out with these real wide ties. <laughs> And he said, boy, if I had had that back then, it would have been a lot easier to, to hide booze. And he just had a wonderful sense of humor, and um, I can still think back about the early days of hearing him. And then we had a character up in Washington, Ernie the Attorney, that is still around on the circuit. And that was back when we were just talking to the local groups. And when he was speaking, I would go. And it was always fun. Speaker meetings, speaker meetings. I missed the ones. We started one over in Tampa. Just, just aren't enough of them. That's where the action was. You just heard the full package. You got the whole AA story at a speaker meeting. And I think that they're the, they really are important. At least they were to me. I think we had seven speaker meetings for every discussion meeting. And now it's probably 25 discussion meetings for every speaker meeting. And, um, and my, I asked my sponsor, when are we going to go to a discussion meeting? He said, why? <laughs> What do you know? What do you know that you could... You don't know anything. So all you do is sit there and do nothing. You could, you know, well, oh, well, I know something. No, you don't know anything. You're not going. So it was, it was three months. Then you were allowed to go to a discussion meeting, and then you didn't talk. You just went there and sort of observed all this stuff. And if I wanted to talk about something, I talked to my sponsor. That's where I whined. And uh, so anyway, seems like there was a seed of a resentment trying to sneak out, but I didn't let it out. Um, but the person that um, I really want to tell a couple stories about, and George knows this person, was the most unusual teacher that I've ever had in Alcoholics Anonymous, and his name was Lenny. And he was a street person up in Washington. He came from West Virginia. And uh, he had a lot of mental problems. It was He was uh, the most nervous, like a caged animal person I ever met in my life. I mean, he couldn't stay in the meeting. And he had four or five years of sobriety that he'd managed to put together. And he'd just sit for a while and then get up and, <laughs> and go out and come back. And just, it was just drive you crazy to be around him. Um, and somehow, he took a liking to me. And uh started coming around to meetings where I was, and he'd always come in and ask me if I had taken my inventory today, because I didn't look too good. 
and this was bothering me a little bit. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to love this guy because I didn't know how to handle this kind of. So I just went along with being his buddy. And I learned a lot of things. Uh, we tried to get him a job one time, and he couldn't take being inside. Uh, it, you knew he was just going to explode. I mean, he'd work for a month or so, and then something would give him that trapped feeling, and boom, he'd just, you know, quit and run out and push the boss aside. And it was just a, one of those things. We even got him a job taking care of the animals at NIH. But that became too disciplined. So it was what do you see? So he spent most of his time living in the streets. He had a bicycle. Uh he showed up at meetings and he'd do real well. Um and he talked about the squirrels a lot, that that was his best friend and that he was a real nut and who understood nuts better than squirrels. <laughs> and um so he would be talking about these things so much that I remember one day I suddenly found myself totally absorbed in listening to him just tell me about the squirrels and how friendly they were and how understanding they were and how therapeutic it was to talk to these squirrels. And I can remember years later if nobody was looking and I was on that vast expanse in front of the U.S. Capitol, behind the Capitol, between the Capitol and the Supreme Court, if you've been there with all those trees and those squirrels, there's squirrels all over the place there. And if nobody was looking, I would look at a squirrel and go, I know Lenny. You know, just, <laughs> just uh, in case there was something there, you know what I'm saying? I might as well... And so one time, I'll tell you the two, the two big lessons. So one day I was going over to um, the Georgetown area to a Saturday morning meeting, and we had had a late snow in Washington, and we probably got about a foot and a half. It just came roaring in. And then, oh, on this Saturday, it must have gone up to 75. You know what I mean? It's just a complete reversal. And that snow was melting so fast, you could just, woof, it was just disappearing. And Lenny wanted to ride back to Georgetown, so I'm riding in the car and never having lived in the street myself, but knowing a lot about it anyway, like all the rest of us, I'm saying, I said to Lenny, I bet you're glad this snow is melting. And he said, oh, no, he said, actually, I prayed for the snow. And I went, you prayed for the snow? You poor guy, you know what I mean? Like, you live out in the street and you prayed for the snow? So I said, Lenny... Why did you pray for the snow? And I felt quite superior as I asked this question. And he said, well, when I was a little kid over in West Virginia, one of the great delights was if you went to bed at night and it snowed, and the next morning the snow was so deep that you couldn't get the school buses, and you had a whole day off, and it was one of the greatest things that could ever happen to a kid. He said, I figure kids are like that today, and I just wanted to give them a surprise. I didn't have any retort to that. I just went on and said, wow, that's really wonderful. Um, then some years later, he got arrested for something and had a slip and was kind of running around crazy and coming in and out of meetings and um, ended up coming into the old Foxhall meeting and busted a bunch of windows with Coke bottles, and then his sponsor went to go help him, and he turned around real quick and hit him with the back of his hand, got a little bloody nose, 
and his sponsor loved him and, and was just going, come on, you're going to be all right, you're going to be all right. And they got him and uh, he went to the hospital and then he disappeared. And we kept asking for about a year, you know, has anybody seen Lenny? Has anybody seen Lenny? We couldn't find him. And there was, it was amazing how many people around that area were concerned about him because they had just grown to love him. And he had had one other problem in a, one of the clubs. He had gotten into a corner and felt trapped and had to run through the people real quick. You know what I mean? Like just to get out of there. So somebody told me about a year later that he was in the mental institution over in Catonsville near Baltimore. And I went, God, a mental institution. So it's Christmas. So I went over there. I knew he looked smoked like a chimney. So I got a carton of cigarettes and went over there. And there he was. And he, you know, he'd been in there for a number of months and they had him on the pills and all that. So he just, some of the spirit was gone, but it was the same old guy. And we finally got away from all the other patients for a while. And I said, Lenny, what are you doing in the mental part over here? And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you. He said, you know, and I um, hit George and his uh, nose bled. And then when I pushed those people over in the club, they said, that really scared me. It really broke my heart that I hurt those AA people. And so when they picked me up on the street and they brought me in here to send me through the alcohol program, I had a chance to think for about 30 days in that alcohol program. And I decided that I would never hurt another AA person again. So when they got ready to let me go, I went and put my head through the plate glass window over there so they'd think I'm crazy and keep me locked up here so I'll never hurt anybody. And any time they think about letting me go, I just go bang my head into the wall and they think I'm crazy and I I know I'll never hurt another AA person again. And I just walked out of there going, wow, you know, I just um, had a lesson from a teacher who you just wouldn't have thought was going to be one of the great teachers that I ever had. And I'll bet as we go around the room tonight, or if we start talking after the meeting, that each one of you has had some experience like that when God spoke to you through the most unusual <laughs> source and, and you just learned something and we suddenly realized that we really want to listen to everyone. And we really better take a second look at everybody in our group and everybody in our neighborhood and see if we haven't drawn some conclusions that we ought to change our mind about and go over and find out that maybe this person is one of the most wonderful people in the world and that we were wrong about these ideas. And it's wonderful in AA to have the freedom to admit that we're wrong and go change our mind and go do something about that. And so... Um, so anyway, I'm glad I shared those stories with you. I'll take about five minutes just to describe drinking, and then I want to talk about what uh, sobriety has been for me. Um, for me, drinking was the answer to all my problems. That's the way I look back on it. I had a lot of problems uh, adjusting to this world and the people in it, and I was very nervous and frightened and apprehensive and could not ever feel that I belonged anywhere, not in the church, not in my family, not in my schools, not in my, with my friends. I always had this feeling of just not fitting in, like something was missing, and it looked like they were all fitting okay, and this bothered me terribly. Now, I couldn't talk about it to anybody because then you wouldn't be cool. 
So you ha- I had to pretend that, just like probably everybody else was doing, that everything was fine. But inside, that's where I was. And I tried to succeed, and i get high grades or be an athlete or whatever, but it wasn't working. I still had this, just this terrible feeling. And on the evening that I had my first drink, in a social situation, trying to meet all these different people, and it was just too much, and I put a couple of drinks inside of me, I found that that alcohol changed the world that I lived in into a very wonderful place. I don't remember changing me, but it changed all these guys, and they all became friendly. Their faces changed, their eyes changed, their smiles, they were all smiling, and they were frowning before, and they all wanted to know me. That's what I saw in people's faces after three drinks. I saw people who really wanted me, and I said, boy, I really belong here. So alcohol transformed the world that I lived in into into something wonderful. And that's why I drank, was to go from the old dark world into this exciting technicolor alcohol world. And it was so comfortable, and I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me. And fear of economic insecurity left me, hey, buy a round in Madison Square Garden, you know what I mean, hey, hey. It was just that sense of well-being and living in the moment. I mean, God, alcohol, we live in the moment. We eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may be dead, you know. So just, who needs to rent money tonight? It's not due till tomorrow, you know. Spend it all. There was that tremendous freedom to just be now in the next day. When alcohol was not in my system, then I was terrified again. I was back unable to make decisions and so on down. Um, I never remember having a problem where I said to myself, now here's a problem I won't be drinking over. (laughs) I never did that. Because the way to solve a problem was to drink. I mean, the only way to get the knowledge to think your way through the problem was to drink because alcohol turned on the computer up here that fear had shut down. My creativity was like... Due to fear. And as soon as I put alcohol in it, it just came free. And I could just come up with the answers. I would just, oh, yeah, I know what I'm going to do with this subpoena. I'm going to burn it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and you just, sometimes the decisions were good and sometimes they were bad. But they were made. And that's what was so frustrating, was not being able to make a decision, just sitting there, you know, should I put on my left sock first or my right sock first? Remember that? Oh, God. Go out in the kitchen, get a drink, put them both on at once. Remember the freedom? I mean, you would just, you could be you when you had some alcohol in and when it was gone. So I always looked at alcohol was that part of me that was missing. So the concept of not drinking at all seemed absolutely out of the question. I mean, that was crazy. You, If you were to suggest me not to drink at all, I would just go, you don't understand me. My whole life is activated by alcohol. Everything is centered on it. Now, I agree I should do a better job at drinking. Now, if you want to talk about controlling it, okay, I can go along with that. But not, not no drinking, that would be insanity. The, the idea of not drinking would be Somehow I'm going to stay sober and miserable for the rest of my life because that's what would happen if I just didn't drink. And that's where AA comes in. 
instance, AA allows us to be happy without not drinking. And I really believe that, that if you've been in AA a reasonable amount of time and you're not reasonably happy, I know you can't be happy all the time, but I, I have a sense now that everything is just wonderful. It's just that I'm temporarily can't see it. But the, but I know it's going to return back to that. You know what I mean? Whereas before, it was always awful and it might get worse. Those were the two things. So now I just believe in the fundamental goodness of human beings, of the earth, of God. And sometimes I just get away from it a little bit. But I know that I'll go to a meeting tonight and it'll be back. So I would say that I'm happy reasonably happy most all the time. And that's what I think is promised in our program. That God's will for us is to be happy, joyous, and free. So if I'm not that way, if I'm just going along resenting for six months, it's not the world's fault, it's my fault. I'm doing it wrong. Because we have the power here to overcome those things. We have the power to get rid of resentments. We have this wonderful higher power. It's just that if I'm not doing it, I'm not going to get the results. And so I, I'm just a great believer in that, and uh, and it's, this power is so great that I can't think of a problem that it wouldn't be able to remove or take us, lift us above it, so that we can see it from a different perspective. Um, I forgot where I was, but that's okay. Um, oh, I was talking about drinking and and the dynamics inside. So that was what made me an alcoholic. Alcohol did wonderful things for me. It also, as Clancy said, did things to me, like put me in jail, start screwing up my liver, started making me shake, it started making me uh, have blackouts. But I considered those a small price to pay for all the fun I was getting out of alcohol. I mean, it was a, it was a trade-off, and it wasn't even close. No matter how much trouble came, to me it was worth it as long as I could keep on drinking. So I never, ever thought that it was too much. And as the years went by, the amount of fun was getting smaller and smaller, and the amount of trouble was getting bigger and bigger, so my ability to rationalize had to be improving. (laughs) And near the end, I was balancing the equation with a rumor that I had had a good time. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'd have a blackout and then wake up in the morning, and I don't know anything, and I'd black guy's teeth knocked out again my wallet's gone and I would find my buddies and I go did I have a good time like, oh yeah you were dancing on the bar you were thank God because I paid a hell of a price for that and I'm, I'm glad to know that it was worth it and so this is the way my mind worked it was just oh yeah trouble but I'm getting all these benefits so it's still I'm willing to hang in there and of course the non-alcoholics are not having this dynamics happen they are not having all of life's problems solved by drinking, and so they can't understand why we would put up with this. And that's what makes us alcoholics, is that this stuff was happening to us. It was answering all these problems. And so I was willing to take all the trouble that went with it. Anyway, I did most of my drinking in the Marine Corps. I was a fighter pilot. I did that for 12 years, and it got so bad near the end that I was shaking and having uh, withdrawal symptoms in the planes, and I couldn't see the instrument panel. I'm sweating. It was just awful. And, I, you know, I've, someday I'd like to hear other speakers who have different professions and have them share problems that weren't supposed to happen in your profession. You know what I'm talking about? Like um, maybe you're a doctor and you come out of a blackout in the middle of an operation and you don't know what you're doing. You know, so you, you have to try and have a conversation with the nurses to lead them into saying this is an appendectomy or something. You know, oh, okay. Well, 
And that would be the type of thing that wasn't covered in medical school. You know what I mean? Like, okay, coming out of a blackout during an operation, this is what you should do. Because no one in their right mind ever thought that anyone would ever have that problem. And I think us alcoholics have had these things that you're not supposed to have. And that's what I was having. Flying jets was having withdrawal attacks in a fighter plane. And that was not in the handbook anywhere. You know, like, okay, if you're... So you had to make up your own solution. And I think that's what makes us so creative, that we dreamed up ways of handling problems that weren't supposed to ever happen. And I've talked about this one that... Um, I said, I'm going to pass out. I knew I was going to pass out. I'm talking to other planes. Roger, Roger. And I said, I'm going to be going out here shortly. God damn, this is awful. This is serious. You know, this is like real attention getter. And I'm panicking. And what am I going to do? And I'm way up high. And uh, no way to get on the ground for another half hour. And I know I'm not going to last a half hour. So what do you do? What do you do? What was that commercial? What will you do? Yeah, so... I came up with, I'll fly the rest of the flight with my hand on the ejection seat curtain, and I, like a death grip, and if I pass out, I'll fall forward, it'll pull the curtain, the seat will fire, the chute opens automatically, and the plane crashes somewhere, and I'm fine. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> now, it didn't happen, but I had this sense of smugness when I thought this up. I'm flying around. <laughs> you know, like, they thought they had me, didn't they? You know, <laughs> But the old fox got out of another one. And you know, that's insanity that you would be sitting there going, nice move, Sandy, coming up with that thing. That's really clever. So the end of my drinking, I, was, I couldn't fly anymore, and I went to the doctors, and they tested me for two weeks in Pensacola, what happened, and we had no alcohol programs or anything about alcoholism, and so they couldn't diagnose us as alcoholics, even though we, I smelled as an alcoholic, I shook, I had red blotches all over my face, my eyes were bloodshot and confused and lost a lot of weight. So it was obviously a childhood fear of flying that had just manifested itself, and that's the way it was written up. And I was reassigned as an air traffic controller, and I went to, and I went to Glencoe, Georgia, to air traffic control school. And then my last year of drinking, I was the officer in charge of an air traffic control unit in Japan. And uh, fortunately, the sergeant when I checked in, took one look at me and said, hey, here's your coffee, and it's over here, and we're in tents. And he said, don't go near the radar. That was his. And I understood what he was saying. He was saying, I'll cover your drinking, but don't go near that radar because you might hurt somebody. And during that year, all the restraints that I thought I had were gone, and I just became a daily drinker, drinking vodka and grain alcohol, Stop going out to happy hour. Stop socializing with anybody. Just stayed in a Quonset hut. Had juice. Lost 50 pounds. Just I was just shaking and, and terrified. Didn't know where to go or you know who to talk to. And they sent me back to the states. And that's when I had the seizure down in Quantico. Went to the nut ward in Bethesda, and I had the DTs, and they locked me up in there for six months. They just leave you in there because there was no alcohol program. 
And after about the fourth month, AA came in and talked them into having a discussion meeting. And that's, no, a speaker meeting. And that's where I got to AA um, in, in the hospital. And then after drinking again about a month later, I called my sponsor on the outside. So I just, that's how it all came about. That, And I went to AA every night for two years and didn't get promoted <laughs> to major. And if you don't, then you're thrown out. You're not thrown out dishonorable discharge. You just aren't paid anymore. And so I'm out, you know. I had served 13 years. I was making a career. And I went to a meeting every night and didn't get promoted. And I felt that was a bad deal. You know, what's this God stuff? I go to an AA meeting every night. I'm doing the steps. I'm doing a good job. Of course, I had this past 13 years. You should see the stuff I did in the Marine Corps that was in my record. Mr. Ship one time. I love microphones. I always had microphones, and I would do comedy routines about generals <laughs> in the clubs, you know. And uh, Oh, I mean, there was just stuff all over the place. But anyway, in my mind, you didn't get sober to get thrown out. And um, so I started thinking that God, this God stuff really was uh, ridiculous. You know, I got six kids. They're starving. I can't find a job. Nobody wants to hire a goofy ex-air traffic controller pilot, and that's the only skill I had. So I got some sales job. I'm not doing well at that, and I'm just I'm going to meetings, and I'm really uh, whining. I was right at the top of the whining list in the Washington area. Whining around, people would go, "God, don't sit near him." He's just ah. <laughs> And mostly I whined to God. I would just, because other people would leave. I'd get in my room in my house and just go up there and, and, and re-feel the whole thing. What it feels like to get told you're, you're out. You know, just, oh God, that was off, you know, like three months ago. I want to keep it fresh in my mind and just keep re-feeling the embarrassment, the anger, the humility. Ah, and just, and if you work on those things, you can, Fill a room, you know, it's like baking bread. You just just resent a little more and resent a little more. And it's just pretty soon it's like, I ought to write a book just about this resentment. Because it would be uniquely good and bestseller. People would go, my God, I never saw resentment. I never saw, I never saw an injustice of that magnitude. Did you ever have one of those? Probably make a Hollywood movie just about that the suffering that I was doing in that room at that moment, there was a, a, a needle, you could see, suffering needle, it would be like, boom, no one's ever come close to having a needle over that far on the suffering needle, my God, what's going on in here, beyond human, oh, it's just, oh. so I'm reading the Washington Post one day, and there was a little story on page three about a team of marine instructors that were killed in a plane crash in Denver. And it was my outfit. And if I had had my way and gotten promoted, I would have been on that plane and would have been killed. And I read it and I just, whoa. And the next feeling I had was that God knew I just read that. And I remember just going, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I see what I'm reading here, God. And, uh, If you had told me this was going to happen, I uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't have been doing all that whining that I. Uh, 
<laughs> that I was doing, but I hope you'll understand. I, there's no way I could have known this was going to happen. <laughs> if you take this out of the equation, it's, it would make sense to be, you know, God's just going, forget it, pal, forget it. You know? So there was a great lesson in there that um, what appears to be a setback may just be a blessing in disguise and it's not over until it's over and so things started unfolding and I got some jobs and I finally got something that I was good at and ended up doing it for about 20 years up in Washington and got my kids through college and they all liked me and were friends and close and I've gotten all this sobriety and the biggest thing I've gotten are these 12 steps. This is um, AA. To me, that's what AA is. It is this constant going back to these principles of how to live. And they don't come naturally. They don't come naturally to my ego. When I think of the prayer of St. Francis, Lord, make me a channel thy peace, do you know? Let me bring happiness. Let me bring joy. Let me bring love. That kind of thinking does not come naturally to me. That is not something where I jump out of bed going, well, I hope I can be a channel of peace today. And just go out and see what needs to be done out there and, and, and help people and, and do all that. I get out, I still get out of bed going, I'm terrified. That's my first thought. Come on, you can make it. Pull the covers back. Okay, okay. I am not thinking about anybody else. I'm just going, oh, something bad's going to happen today. I know it, I know it, I know it. And finally I get down on my knees, say some prayers, get up and... Throw some water on my face and I go, hey, I'm alive, I'm okay. That's all crazy, that's all thinking. But I start thinking about what, what, what do I need today? What, what do I need? What do I need? And when I start that, I start getting unhappy and I start getting resentment and I start getting, because everything's all screwed up. I'm trying to figure out what I want, what my way is and how to get it. And if I don't remember to get the literature or to get those prayers out, then it might be all the way till I get to a meeting and somebody says, you don't want to think that way. That's the wrong way to go through a day. You want to go through a day based on these steps. You want to turn it over to God. You want, oh yeah, oh yeah, shit, I remember now. Oh yeah. I mean, I only got 25 years. What do you think? I'm a fast learner? I mean, I don't know, I don't know this stuff. And my ego just doesn't want God to be in charge. It's that simple. That is the part of me that wants the separate identity. There's me, and there's all of you, but there's me, and I am, and then we all have to fill in, excuse me, oh, Lee, that was a good one. <laughs> Lee's going to an ear doctor tomorrow. And I'm just, you know, this is the natural way for self-centered people to think is to think about ourselves and what we need and how we can go meet them and how all these people are in the way of getting what I need in order to be happy. So the program and these 12 steps are constant reminders that that plan doesn't work. That plan is awful. The whole world lives by that plan. That's the plan society is trying to stuff down our throats. That plan does not work. Just look at the results. Bill talks about that in, the, in our literature. Look at the results. The philosophy of self-sufficiency isn't working. Here's where we find this happiness, in the surrendering to these ideas that don't make sense. I've always felt that the 12 steps were a series of actions that you take that you don't believe in. 
and you believe in them after you do them and you get the results. Then we can get to believe in it. Or we can get to believe it by trusting our sponsor or somebody else who did it. And we look at the results that they have. If you want what we have, this is how you get there. And it won't look like you can get there. I remember looking at these steps when I finally believed that they were the answer. Enough people had convinced me. And so I took a moment again, really studying them because I had the same problems everybody else does. I had the sexual problems, I had financial problems, and I had job prestige problems. So I go through these things and I'm, well, I must have missed something. You know, I went through the 12 and 12. I don't see the money step anywhere. That, um, I don't see the sex step and I don't see... The security step, I see inventories and surrendering. I do not see the connection between my problems as I see them and this. And you can study these for the next 15 years and you will never see the connection between your life and these steps until you do them. And then it comes clear as a bell. And we realize that what this does, what these 12 steps are going to do, is to produce this conscious contact with a higher power in our lives. And when we get lifted to that dimension of living, Bill talks about being catapulted to the fourth dimension of existence, whatever you want to call it, when we get to be able to see the world as it really is, it's a God-centered world and not a self-centered world. And when I look at the world with me as the center, I'm not the center, so everything looks screwed up. It's kind of like when the astronomers were trying to make sense out of the sky with the earth as the center of the universe and it wouldn't fit. You remember that? And then they had to go, wait a minute, the sun is the center of the soul. Now all these motions make sense and, and now we can be comfortable with it and that's what happens. When I can go through these days having God be the center, that's the center of everything. That is the whole thing. And I'm just this little part of this big plan then, then I can see it and go, yeah, I see that. That's what I see out here. But when I just get up and it's me, my self-centeredness against the world, everything is screwed up. And it's simply because I'm not the center. But us self-centered people, when I remember when I was new and they said, you know, self-centeredness is the root of your problem, self-centered. And I remember going, it is. I finally admitted it. I said, you know, they're right. And I'm going to fix that. That was, that was self-centered answer. I am going to fix self-centeredness. I'm admitting to it and I'm going to fix it. And how are you going to become unself-centered? And I remember saying, what's the opposite of self-centered? Unself-centered? That's not much of a word. And then I was going, well, what is the opposite of it? And of course, God-centered. That's the only way to get out of self-centeredness, is to have a higher power as the center of everything. And once I understood that, then I understood that these 12 steps were designed for that to happen inside of me, that I had to go and surrender and inventory everything that's blocking me from this higher power. I like to think of character defects as blockages, you know, the channel that the prayer of St. Francis, and, and this channel is blocked. There's filled with resentments and anger and lust and greed and all the things that we have, and if I can open that, I can experience the inner joy that has no connection with what's going on outside. It is totally separate from that. And when my needs are being met from the inside out, I have no demands on you. And when I have no demands on you, you love me. 
And when I'm self-centered and I have all these demands on you, you want to stay away from me. And so in reality, we create our own world. There's this, somewhere in the literature that says we bring out the very worst in people. Now think about that for a second. As self-centered alcoholics, if we bring out the worst in people, then everywhere we go, people are acting at their worst. So our whole world consists of people acting at their worst. And it's no wonder we said, this is a rough world. <laughs> and I think I've mentioned this before, my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, my sister was planning it. And she gave me the list of all the people that were coming and we were going to make little talks and all that. And um, she mentioned one uncle and I went, oh, no. Oh, God, do we have to invite him? Please. And she had 20 years in AA at the time, so I was a great respecter of her. And uh, I said, Sue, do we have to invite him? Yes, of course. He lives right here in New Haven. Well, he's so... um, aggressive and he's obnoxious and he just has that chip on his shoulder and she said he only does that when you're around (laughs) and I went what yeah something about you that just gets him the wrong way so I trusted her I said okay I'm gonna I'm gonna take her at his word even though my whole life experience is contrary to that so when I got there I ran up like he was my best friend. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Blah, 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 blah. And he went, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And he was wonderful. So she was right. So if that's the case, then we may have an explanation of why the world appears to get more wonderful after we get sober. It's because we become God-centered and walk out into the world trying to bring something to it. And people embrace us. They're so glad to see us. They're so glad to be around us. We're living in harmony with our environment. And the power to do that is coming from our higher power. It's not me. We're just simply going out, as Chuck used to say, as God's kids, just trying to come out and celebrate life and celebrate the fact that we're all little children of this wonderful, loving being. And when we see each other in that light, it's so much easier to sit next to one another and just go, isn't this great? Isn't this great being part of this big thing? It's wonderful to be part of something wonderful instead of trying to be something wonderful. And uh, if you're new, stop trying so hard. Just surrender into this beautiful fellowship that uh, is just filled with people, even if they don't know it yet. They want to love everybody. They've just never been able to let it out. So hopefully this weekend will bring down some barriers and you'll start seeing what a magnificent, loving person you are and what a delight that'll be. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it.